I ask you if you would please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Timothy 2 in the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And Jacob, could you bring me down just a little bit? I'm a yeller. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about maintaining our mission. So I think it's important to get this passage in our minds, talk a little bit about it, break it down, and derive some conclusions about why this applies to Grace Bible Church. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's take a moment, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word. We know, Lord, it's everything that you want us to know about you. Especially as we look forward to a brand new year. May it help us hone our focus and convict our hearts. And if we are stale, would change us. And if we are not stale, would light us on fire. Help us, God, to recognize the significance of all that you have for us today. It's in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start by, by bringing this up. And explaining this real quick, the first thing is is our mission statement. I'm not running the, I'm not running the, uh, the PowerPoint today. So PJ, can we bring that up? Loving people to life in Christ. Let me break this down for you about why this is important. Number one, I can't find anything unbiblical with it, so that's important. If you're going to have a statement that is to fuel you moving forward as a body of believers, it better be biblical first. Number one, loving is the means. This is how it gets done. Loving people. Loving them. That means dealing with their stuff. That means helping them unpack it. That means being willing to help carry them through it. And it's not a one-man job. It's a body-wide job. And all the body has to be all in on this or it doesn't work. So maybe a point of prayer, and I'm going to go ahead and say, I don't blame you if you feel this way because I get it. Lord, I just don't love everybody. I don't either. And that's okay. 
Because what it does is it exposes the rottenness in my heart and shows me where I'm not spirit-led. And if I'm not spirit-led, it's flesh. And if it's flesh, it'll profit nothing in the end. I may have all the good intentions and all the good works and all the good desires and all the good schemes and all the good plans and all the right things in mind, but my best works in the flesh are the bottom of the dung pile as far as God is concerned. They don't matter. And the reason is, is because they are missing Him in the midst of them. And that's why it has to be Spirit-led. Now real quick, we all know that the Holy Spirit is a third of the Trinity, yes? Just making sure. Okay. He's not down the back alley somewhere as like this mystery person, okay? He's God. So make sure we know that. The second point is people. And the reason why we're to love people is because that's who God loves. And if my love is not directed in that way, I'm off base. God loves people. In fact, He loved the whole world. He gave His Son. That was the motivation for providing salvation for every single person. It was the fact that people needed to be saved. Now what else is interesting about that is we're loving them in a direction. And that's to life. And the reason why life is in all caps is because it has two facets to it. Number one, lost people need to get saved. Period. People who have no direction, no hope in the world, are destined for the lake of fire, have got to hear a message that is going to give them the opportunity to respond differently about how they approach eternity. This is one of the reasons why when you bring God up at a family function, people would much rather put an ice pick between their ears than listen to you talk about it. Why? Because it sets a standard of conviction that they can't deal with. And so by you bringing all this light in, the cockroaches in their mind are starting to scatter. They can't handle it. Lost people need to hear the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave. It's ten words. It's not hard. You are saved by faith and faith alone. Do you believe that what I've told you is true? And it needs to be unpacked and it needs to be explained. And as much opportunity as you have, great, take it. But here's another interesting thing, and I know this messes some of you up. The second part of life is that the saved need to get saved. Did you hear me? And here's the reason why. is because a lot of times when we come to faith in Christ, and this is the way it's supposed to go, We begin doing Bible studies, we begin learning a lot, we begin feeling our way through these things, and we start to get a head understanding of what's going on. Textbook knowledge is good. I'm so thankful that a nurse that would draw my blood has textbook knowledge before she ever gets a needle out. But when she gets the needle out and begins to apply the textbook knowledge is when a difference really starts to make that is measurable. And it's the same with us. Is we can have all the textbook knowledge in the world that we want about things. And don't get me wrong. I love getting all in the nooks and crannies of the Bible. That's my favorite place to hang out. It really is. I like the weird stuff in Scripture. You probably didn't need me to tell you that. But also, if it's not used in order to draw me into a greater and growing relationship with Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The point of the Bible is to change lives, not to fill heads. And so lost people need to get saved. They need to come from death into life. 
And people who understand that they have eternal life as Christians need to start experiencing the abundant life that Jesus makes available to them. That's how we grow in our faith. But it all moves in one direction, and that's in Christ, because that's the only way. It can't move in any other direction. And so notice that this this statement, number one, I'm not trying to win you to our mission statement. Understand that. I'm trying to win you to what the Bible says is true and making sure that we're all on the same page and that we would all be persuaded in that direction because I believe this is a biblical way of understanding what the Bible might have to say if we could sum it up into one sentence. Christ is the focal point of all Scripture. And if Christ is not the centerpiece of everything we desire to do, it does not matter. The direction is wrong. All you got to do is be a degree off for things to get really bad down the road. It doesn't take much. So with this in mind, I think what happens here when we deal with 2 Timothy, it pulls us into this, let's recalibrate and let's reassess and let's rethink for a moment and ask ourselves a question, what kind of house cleaning needs to happen? Now here's what I'm not doing. I'm not asking you to make a New Year's resolution. You guys already know how I feel about that. And here's the reason why. Resolutions are in the flesh. Resolutions are devoid of the Spirit by and large. And so unless it is a conviction from the Lord to move in a certain direction, we shouldn't move. I would really like to do this more. Great. Is the Lord moving you in that? Because if He's not, the greatest thing you could do, as the psalmist tells us, is to wait on the Lord and what He wants to do instead of making these split random, I think this is what I ought to do so that Jesus will be happy with me kind of thing. Stop. God's already pleased with you. He's already pleased with you because of what Jesus has done. Let's stop earning what we already have. We already have that. Now, Mary Walker, I didn't call you sunshine. I'm using notes today, just letting you know. I thought long and hard about this because I wanted to go through it. We have to hold fast to this mission. Not for the mission statement itself, but because it's biblical. And if we want to be known as anything, especially in Portage, we want to be known as the church that holds fast to God's Word because it's God's Word. Period. Here are three things I can think of. The reason why we need to hold fast, number one, is because of the direction of our nation. It's all going severely downhill. There are things that I wanted to talk about today with you, but because there are children and teenagers in the room, I don't feel comfortable even saying it. Our nation is not in a good spot. Number two, the direction of our churches. I don't know if you've noticed, but our churches are dropping right and left. They're abandoning the Scriptures. It's just not sufficient anymore. I had a text conversation with someone yesterday who was somewhere. They said, you know, I attended a Christmas Eve service. We went to this church that we don't normally attend, and we decided we'd go there because they had a Christmas Eve service. And when we went there, the entire stage was set up as a family's living room, and what they did for the service was people came out as a family, they sat on a couch, and they read children's stories the entire time, ended it, and we all went home. The Bible was not there at all. This is where we are. I thank God that I don't have a smoke machine back here that if I say something profound, can you imagine? (laughs) What a mess. This is where we are. 
I'm so thankful for Christmas Eve because we have extra people. And guys, we had extra people last week. Be a good conversation. Say, hey, where were you this week? Wasn't as hot as last week. (laughs) 370 people were here. We had like 54 kids here. Yeah, praise the Lord, our children's church leaders are still alive, you know? I'm so thankful we don't have drummers suspending, going up and down from the ceiling like I've seen some churches. That's cool. Has no place before the Lord. Doesn't really matter. We're not here to razzle-dazzle. We will kill ourselves if we're a razzle-dazzle church, and everybody is going for the experience and forsaking the doctrine. You cannot have spirit-wrought experience if you forsake doctrine. It is the basis of the Word of God taken in the textbook knowledge that allows you to properly understand what that needle is, why it needs to be applied, and what that's for. And we have to be in alignment with that. A third thing is the fact that we have a calling before us. Very much in line with with loving people to life in Christ, our calling is evangelism and discipleship. Let's not get that wrong. It's very much what we're about to do. But we've also come to a unified consensus that God has called us to build. We've had conversations. We've had meetings over and over and over. We've had a ton of meetings as elders. We've had a ton of prayer, and we've come to this conclusion. And we've had an incredible pledge drive to move in this direction. And we have sketches out there. And detailed mock-ups are being done right now for the sake of contractors to be looked at as far as how plans are going to go, where an electrical outlet's going to be placed. All that stuff that I don't care about. I just know that we need power in the church. But all of this is beginning to move forward. We have a calling in front of us. And why? The building is not so that we look cool. The building is so that we have a grand tool opportunity of inviting lost people in to tell them one thing. Jesus loves you and he died for you so that you could go to heaven and not hell. That's what it's about. That's what we're about as a church. That's what our DNA is about. So here's a question. How do we stay on course? I think 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-7 through 7 give us incredibly clear directions. Now, let me give you some background just real quick. Number one, this is Paul's last letter. After this, shortly after, he's beheaded by Rome. So he knows he doesn't have much time left. Number two, this whole letter to Timothy is about persisting in the faith, not giving up, staying steadfast, keeping with it. When it gets hard, not flaking out. Staying in the fight. Not because you're having to dig deep to find the endurance, but because the truths you have in front of you are so vital and eternally important to make a difference in people's lives. We do not serve an impotent God. That is so important for us to understand. Sometimes we act like the things of this world are such an incredible threat against us, and God is somehow powerless or shackled to deal with it. It is our lack of faith in who God says that he is that keeps that power from being available to his people. The world has no bearing on him, and he's not surprised by any of that. So until that thinking gets lined up straight, we will not see the power of God demonstrated amongst our congregation. We have got to recognize he is all-powerful. Look at verse 1. Now, This is Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy is the pastor at Ephesus at this time. We've been studying through that book. But there's a lot of application for the church as a whole. Look what it says. You therefore, my son. Why does it say therefore? Well, he's going through talking about how if you are going to serve the Lord, you can be guaranteed of one thing, you're going to suffer. 
It's going to be costly. You're going to have to give something up. You might find yourself without at some moment. Let me give you a plain experiment that you can conduct for yourself. Find out what CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC think is important. Check it with the Bible. Recognize that they're nuttier than a squirrel turd. And then turn around and decide that instead you're going to uplift the Word of God. And you're going to say, no, you're wrong. God is right. And watch it happen. You've never seen hatred to such depths. As you will when someone has a disagreement of opinion. Because when you don't fit the narrative, you'll be canceled. You'll be shamed. You'll be despised. Rejected. Sent away. And when it happens, we think we're prepared for it. And we're not. This is the importance of the body of Christ. So when it says, therefore, Paul goes through and says, don't be ashamed of my chains. Suffer with me, Timothy. It's the right way to go. In fact, if you look back at chapter 1, you might look up and you'll see, let me see here, where are they at? Verse 15, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Man, he lists them out as two who turned away from Paul. They weren't willing to stick it out. They weren't willing to suffer. It got too hard and they gave up. Paul points them out. They are forever chronicled in the Word of God as people who failed. Believers who failed. If you notice right underneath that, he goes through and he talks about, verse 16, Onesiphorus. What a great name. Onesiphorus, what does it say about him? He often refreshed me, and here it was, and was not ashamed of my chains. In fact, Onesiphorus set out a diligent search party in Rome to try to find Paul so that he could get with him and minister to him. Rome's a huge place. And Onesiphorus did everything he could in order to make his way to Paul. Why? Because he loved Paul? Because he wasn't ashamed of what was happening to Paul? Let me ask you a question. You look around the room and some of your brothers and sisters end up in chains. Are you going to go to the jail? Are you going to go to the pokey and visit them? Are you going to see them? You see what I'm saying? Because all of a sudden you're publicly, publicly recognized as an affiliate. You're guilty by association. Don't pretend the persecution can't get bad in this country. It's coming. It's coming. Be ready. Notice that it says, my son, just real quick, I have a translation problem here, because the word is actually the one that's used of a child. It could either be male or female, doesn't matter. But notice that this is a term of love and endearment that Paul is giving to Timothy. He says, be strong in the grace that is in, only one place, Christ Jesus. Everybody see that phrase, be strong? Everybody see that? That is actually what's known in Greek as a present tense imperative. Let me break that down to you. An imperative is something of the idea that if you would just exercise your will in this direction, it could happen. It's a possibility. But the present tense gives this idea of it's a continuing action. So probably a better translation of this would be, continue growing strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
Now, we have a lot of motivations in life to grow strong in certain directions. I wrote down just a few that I thought were interesting. We are often strong in our opinions. Anybody here just as bullheaded as the day is long? There you go. You're strong in your opinions. How about attitudes? Those are the moody people. I like y'all. Y'all are fun. Probably because I'm one of y'all. That's okay. How about strong personality? That's a strong personality. How about strong will? James Dobson even wrote a book, The Strong-Willed Child. Why? Because that's what they're continuing to grow strong in is their will in some things. Here's one thing that I thought was interesting about all those things that we sometimes pride ourselves on being strong in is the fact that if they're unchecked by God's word, they will all lead to permanent infancy in the Lord. We will remain babies in Christ if that's what we pride ourselves in being strong on. What does the Bible say? Be strong in grace. Learn what it is to be gracious. Reflect upon the grace that has been shown to you and then be a conduit of which that grace can pour over to others. Let's be honest. To be gracious to people, we need a reason. We really do. And you oftentimes don't find the reason in that person. And so it's got to come from an external source in order to be valid. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There's the motivation. How much did God forgive you? Now forgive others. How much has God loved you? Now love others. How much has God graced you? Now grace others. It's only when we get away from the cross that we find that grace seems unreasonable. But the greater that we cling to the cross, grace seems to be the only suitable course of action. One way to lick your finger and hold it to the wind in your Christian life is to ask the question, am I growing in grace? If you're growing in grace, you can't go wrong. Let me give you a definition of grace. Where's my paper? This is by a guy named R.B. Thiem. I love pulling pulling definitions about grace, and I especially like good ones, okay? So here we go. Grace is all that God is free to do for mankind on the basis of the saving work of Christ on the cross. Because Jesus died and made it possible and removed the barrier that once separated people from Him, God is now free to move and to act, and everything that He does in our lives is grace. God can be no other way. In fact, when we're told to be strong, to continue being strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, notice that it's in Christ Jesus, which means it's the same type of grace that would have been shown to us. Number two, look at verse two. The things which you have heard from me, so notice, Timothy, everything that you were taught by Paul is what he's saying. Look what he says. In the presence of many witnesses, you know who that is? The church. What you heard me say in the public assembly of brothers and sisters. Look what it says. Entrust these two faithful men who are able to teach others also. Discipleship, that's what that is. Somebody expounding upon the word of God and doubling that over into your cup so that your cup will get so filled as to where not only you can drink it, but others around you desire to drink it as well. 
Notice the qualification is a faithful person. There are faithful Christians and there are unfaithful Christians. Which one are you? This is a really good barometer to check ourselves. Can unfaithful Christians maintain a mission of loving people to life in Christ? Will an unfaithful Christian have as their chief understanding, I need to look for opportunities and pray for opportunities to share the gospel and encourage my brothers and sisters in the gospel. Unfaithful Christians are not looking for this. Unfaithful Christians are getting locked up and can't be entrusted with the Word of God. Why is that? Because they still have to be milk-fed by the Word of God. So this is something that might cause us to reevaluate where we stand with God's Word. Maybe we haven't taken the time to take this seriously. Why? Do we not like the truth? It's okay if you say no. I understand that. So again, sometimes the truth is so convicting, we don't know how to deal with it, so we run from it. Or we cover it up. We let dust be the greatest thing that's ever touched it. That becomes concerning. Are we open to the Word of God and the moving of the Spirit of God so that we will actually have a teaching discipleship doctrine to person to person to person situation in this church? Is that happening? And if so, what part are you playing in it? Because people don't grow any other way than by doctrine and time. That's how the Holy Spirit does it. It takes time. There are no short, shortcuts. Again, we are not Mick Church, okay? Please recognize this. You can't order and then drive around and immediately get it. It doesn't work that way. And we often expect results now, results now. A lot of this is teaching and waiting. Teaching and waiting. Because that's how God grows us. Who are the faithful people in this church that can be entrusted with doctrine? that are willing to spill that over and invest it into other people. Are you one of those people? A good prayer point. Notice here the third verse. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Why? Because suffering happens. In fact, PJ, if you don't mind real quick, later on in this book, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, mark it down. Look what it says. Indeed, all who desire to live Godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. 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 Well, that wouldn't happen. We're America. Right? Interesting. Do some research sometime. Look at what our higher-ups have planned for Christians down the road. Ask yourself a question. I'm not going to bring that up. That might mess up people. Suffering happens. In fact, it's illogical for a people who are called by the name of Almighty Creator God and put into the body of Christ which is an entire mindset and living that is antithetical to everything that Satan has carefully crafted and quilted this world to be. And for us to scratch our heads and say, I wonder why I'm not being accepted on this situation. This is not an over-exaggeration, guys. The world is satanic. That's not just me being dramatic as much as I like to do that. 
It's honest. Take a clear look at how backbiting is so common. Gossip is so reveled in. Take a look at all the fishing hooks that are in the water to get our kids to go down a dark path. You realize how many women have destroyed themselves because of their own self-image and it just didn't meet their standard? Because they never took the time to look at themselves as someone who was crafted and knitted by God Himself in the image and likeness of a Creator. Why is that value not enough? Guys, why do we always have to walk around with our chests poked out? Oh yeah? It's almost like you can hear the spurs when we walk. Is that manhood? It sounds more like a compensation for not having manhood. Because the Bible paints an incredibly different story. The Bible paints a story, paints a picture of somebody who is faithful, who loves their wife and bears long and understandingly with her, who is invested and active in the life of their kids, and someone who reveres God before anything else and lets the chips fall where they may. That's biblical manhood. Notice how the world wants to paint an antithetical picture. It's like looking in a mirror in a funhouse, and it doesn't add up. Suffering is going to happen. Not only that, but look what the rest of this verse says. Notice, suffer with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now we got an image to grab onto, right? A good soldier. A good soldier of Christ Jesus. If you stick with it, are you a good soldier? How come we don't know the answer to that? Yes? No? Okay? If you're a good soldier, do you go AWOL? No. What constitutes a good soldier? Abandoning your troop? No. Obedience. Isn't there usually a strategy laid out before you that needs to be executed? Battle plans that have been drawn up? A lot of research has gone into that. A lot of thinking has been put together. Paul uses this as a reason because the church of Jesus Christ has been given a tactical strategy. Evangelize, disciple. Nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. That's what we do. And when we're not doing that, guaranteed this, we're not good soldiers. And why does he take suffering and couple it together with the idea of good soldier? Because anytime that you're obedient to the Lord, you will suffer. The way that we maintain our mission as a church is we prepare for 2024, especially in the midst of an election year, the fact that we may be suffering congregation. It may happen. The world is bananas enough for it to move in this direction. What else do I got to say about this? How do we deal with suffering? Well, here's the answer in short. Draw near. Anytime that a suffering situation is put forward in the Bible, you will always find around it in some form, fashion, or context, draw near to God. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Why? Because he didn't go anywhere during that entire time. Everybody else may have abandoned Paul in Rome. Guess who didn't? The Lord. And he took comfort in that. He took understanding in that. 
Will it cost you? Yes, it will cost you. It'll cost me. Be prepared to see it. Prepare prayerfully your heart now to experience it. It'll happen. Look at verse 4. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Church, what does this tell you that you are? You're a soldier. We talk a lot about who we are in Christ. Number one, whether you realize this or not, you're a soldier. Do you recognize that a battle is going on? A war is going on all around us. The thing that kills us is it's unseen. And if we don't know the Word of God, we don't know that it's going on. We just fall in line with it and let it conquer us slowly. That's the interesting thing about erosion. It has a big impact, but it slowly takes place so that you barely notice it's happening. Every one of us in this room, a believer in Jesus Christ, is a soldier. Let me say this. Notice the word here is dealing with entangles. Does everybody see that? To become so involved in some activity as to experience severe restrictions as to what one can do. That's what one Greek lexicon says. In other words, by a good soldier getting involved in civilian matters, we all of a sudden become shackled and hung up in those matters to narrow. We can't operate for Christ. You can't evangelize in discipleship when you're wrapped up in the things of the world. They have a hold on you. And they refuse to let you go. There's not been a greater billboard for Satan and his kingdom than a Christian who sits on their thumbs and doesn't do jack. He loves that. So let me go ahead and strike the nerve. Are you ready? 2024 is an election year. Our political entanglements will get us off mission. But don't you realize if we don't... I've heard it before. Christ is your King. He is your seven-star general. And when I get entangled in the things of this world, I lose sight of what God wants me to do. It's almost like I've put on the headphones. I have a pair of headphones at home for whenever I play drums. I can put them on. Actually, everybody else puts them on while I play. But noise-canceling headphones. It's the kind you'd use at a shooting range. Recognize that that's something that will so bind you up that evangelism seems like a silly issue to even concern yourself with. Because for some reason, we think that if we elect somebody in the right office, we're going to get out of this mess. Our king's already been elected. He can't be overthrown. And he's waiting. Recognize this. Trust God's timing. Don't let this stuff get you off mission. Another thing that could get us off mission. Denominational preferences. It's been amazing how I've seen and I just heard conversations about denominational preferences and how for some reason they've overcome What's going on in the Bible? I have it on my phone and I shut my phone off. It's probably good. 
but I actually have it listed on my phone. Where at a council not too long ago, the Pope made a decision that because Muslims believe that there is one God, well, they're part of heaven as well. Regardless of the fact that they don't believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, they don't believe that He died for their sins, they don't believe that He was God in the flesh, and they think that if you say that God is a trinity, it's blasphemy and they will kill you. That's where we're at in that situation. A good soldier would suffer to disagree with that. How about our work relations? Well, you're not going along with what everybody else is at your job because of your convictions about the truth. Guess what? Getting entangled in those things will get you off mission. It will render you disobedient. How about our families? Boy, nothing can sway like a family, can it? Woo! Play that card, Ben. But I'm your mother. True. Maybe you're not walking with the Lord right now, and that's why I shouldn't listen to you. That sounds so harsh. But guys, let's think truthfully about something rather than thinking emotionally about something. As children of God and as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are dealers of truth. Truth is our business. That's what we're about. If it wasn't for the truth, we wouldn't be saved because everybody's trying to get saved in every other way except besides the truth. If we get entangled in things that are untruth, we will find ourselves untruthful. So while these things are part of our lives, we have to recognize they are not our lives. Jesus Christ is our life. Colossians 3 is very clear. Now let me say this also about entanglement. It's one of the reasons why we get entangled in the things of the world is because of fear. Because we have been fear-mongered into, oh my gosh, if I don't do this, I'm going to be in trouble. Oh, good grief, this is going to happen. And everything always feels like that the world is closing in on us and we're all in a sinkhole to begin with, period. Guys, that has got to stop. Recognize for believers in Jesus, fear is unbelief. Fear is not from God unless it is a fear of God. Martin Luther said that, not me. So recognize unless it's me coming into a very sober reverence of what God desires for my life, any bearing that fear would have on me is unbiblical and therefore satanically motivated. Period. There is no gray area and there is no fence there. Sit on the fence too long, you get hurt. I want you to humor me for a second. I'm not going to read all this. Don't worry. But I found this in the wee hours of the night last night when I was praying about today. And I thought, man, this is incredible. I've got to read just a couple of paragraphs for everybody. And I loved it so much that I printed 20 copies of it and put it out there on the Welcome Center. As you leave, you can pick it up. You're welcome. This is by C.S. Lewis. This was written in 1948. World War II had come to a close, and there was all this fear about the atomic bomb and the atomic age. And the title of this essay is called On Living in an Atomic Age. And here's what he says. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or, as you would have lived in the Viking Age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. Real encouraging guy here. 
Or indeed, as you're living already in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. What's wrong with this guy? It's better. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors. Anesthetics. Right? Just take some anesthesia. That'll get you off of it. But we still have this. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. This is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that. But they need not dominate our minds. And we stand at the cusp of seeing the very civilization we live in falling into the the heap. This is how Christians are supposed to be different. Motivated by eternal values. Why? Because we're good soldiers. Because we understand the one who's in charge. And the only charge that we have is to be pleasing to them. And Paul warns us, getting entangled and the fear-mongering things of the world are going to render us defenseless when it comes time to take action and to move forward. And what? It's real simple, guys. Evangelism and discipleship. That's it. That's it. Notice verse 5 here. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete... He does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. In fact, you might have a marginal note there. Notice it says, also if anyone competes as an athlete, everybody see the marginal note? He is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Do we not every four years watch the Olympics? And there are standards that are set? How many of you are familiar with someone named Lance Armstrong? From 1999 into 2005, he had seven championships of the Tour de France. And i got to say it that way because my Kentucky accent makes me say France. The Tour de France. Seven titles consecutive. And then come to find out shortly afterwards, he was involved in a doping ring and was stripped of every one of those titles. He's a cheater. He ultimately didn't win, did he? Does God not know everything and see everything? He does. And he understands, number one, that we're athletes in a race. If we're anything in Christ, we're also an athlete. We're in a race. 
What's amazing is, is again, I've said this before, I'm not in competition with you and you're not in competition with me. The competition is to endure faithfully staying in my lane, moving forward. And if all I care about is obeying the Lord, holding fast to his word, and therefore evangelism and discipleship will pour out of that, I will always be in my lane. I will always make it successfully to the end. And I will so be crowned because I chose to compete according to the rules that God set forward for me. See, the only way that we get out of that realm is when we get our eyes off the prize. We're not maintaining our mission. That becomes a problem. How about this one? Verse 6. The hardworking farmer. Laverne, you listening? Making sure. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Recognize that you're not just a soldier and you're not just an athlete, you're a farmer. Farming takes time. Doesn't it take time? Takes a lot of time. And having faith. I've seen a couple of situations where it's been, we need to pray for rain. In fact, it's sunshine who always brings that up. I think that's interesting. We need to pray for rain for farmers. It takes a long time. It's a lot of harm work. There's a lot of calluses involved in some of this. There's a lot of planning. There's a process. See, here's what's interesting about this. Whether you're a soldier, whether you're an athlete, or whether you're a farmer, all of it is contained in this idea of a tried and true process that yields the results that are expected at the end. This isn't anything different than what God has put forward from His church. But what concerns me is is that churches have gotten so off target with this and have fallen so in love with the things of the world that we can't even understand what the results ought to be anymore as God designed and instructed us to live them out. We've lost sight of what it is to be not just Bible-embracing, but Spirit-led. That's why sometimes we don't recognize that we're naked, poor, and blind. Guys, sometimes we live in denial of the very worst things that plague us because we won't bring it to the light of the truth. Recognize this. Only Jesus has the salve to rub that out. No one else does. Pride is not going to accomplish me. Our world is so bent on sexual accomplishment. It's not gaining anything. It's just spreading greater depravity and debauchery. Believer, if you've thought for one second that the idea that you can shack up with your girlfriend or boyfriend and not be married to her, Your entire understanding of what marriage is has been completely twisted. You cannot take your sex life into your own hands. You are violating the temple of the Holy Spirit in doing so. That is God's daughter, not yours. She doesn't belong to you. Get your hands off of her. That is God's son. You have no claim on that person. That is found in a commitment that is made before God because God is the designer of marriage. It was something He put together before sin ever entered the picture. And all we've done is chosen to handle it sinfully once we got a hold of it. 
We need a Christ recorrection in the heart for those things. Well, I'm just trying to get a good I'm trying to be a good believer. Cool, man. Move out, get your own apartment, and put a ring on that finger. Make that sin right. Stop living in it. How about this last one here? Verse 7. Consider what I say. Notice that's Timothy's job in, in reading this. Stop for a second and consider this. Roll it over in your mind. Meditate on it. Ruminate on it. Trust me, you won't get the athlete, soldier, farmer illustrations at first bat if you're not familiar with this. You won't. So let it soak. But look what it says that God will do. For the Lord will give you understanding in what? Everything. In other words, apart from the Lord giving you supernatural ability to comprehend it, so that it's not just the textbook knowledge, but it's breeding heart conviction in the midst of all that. This is a vital truth that he's laying out here that will be left untouched in your life. So meditate on it here, and hopefully it will soak down in the soil to where it will take root here and begin bringing forth fruit. The Holy Spirit's the one who does that. Now let me show you why this is important. Turn over with me to chapter 4. Again, same letter, same author, same recipient. Conversation has moved forward. But then Paul says something really interesting that mirrors this entire point. He knows that it's going to be the end of his life. And here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. We don't know how he understood that, but the Lord had obviously helped him grasp. Paul, your life is coming to an end. You know what's amazing about that? Paul's okay with that. Paul's come to terms with it. The Lord has probably given him a dose of dying grace as he does every saint who is facing that and is obedient. But in the same regard, there comes a resolve, a point of resolve for the Christian. And coming to the terms of the fact that life may end. And you've heard me say this before, but it's true. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to the Christian. Recognize that. I know it's hard for us to see on this side, but in terms, we graduate. That's great, man. Turn the tassel. Live in eternity. Hey, look, God, I'm going to try to sin. I can't do it. Why? Because you're in a glorified body. Praise the Lord. I love it. What a great place to be. Sinful thoughts, gone. Sinful words, gone. Seeing things that are sinful, hearing things that are sinful, desiring things that are sinful, gone. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Notice he says in verse 7, I fought the good fight. Everybody understand that a soldier fights? A good soldier fights. A bad soldier runs. A good soldier fights. Notice that Paul's drawing off of what he said earlier. I fought the good fight. Look what he says after that. I finished the course. Who's that sound like? 
an athlete. It's a race. I've competed according to the rules that have been laid out. I've kept the faith. Now, here's the thing. If I said that to you and you said that to me, you'd go. And then in your mind you're thinking, this guy's really full of himself, isn't he? How come we don't think that about Paul when we look into the pages of Scripture? You know why? Because Paul's just telling us the truth. It's not boastful. It's not prideful. Paul is going back and doing a self-evaluation. And he's saying, the call that I've given you to Timothy, recognize this. It's not just here. It's a fact that I've lived it. And now that I'm at the end of my life, and my life is going to be taken so that it gives way to life eternal forever with the Lord. Here are some things I can confidently say before I depart. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Now watch this. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Let me ask you the question. Are you in love with the idea of one day Jesus appearing and taking you away with Him? If that's the case, a crown of righteousness has been stored up for you. Does everybody see in that where He says He will award that to me on that day? He seems excited about meeting the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. Yet when I often talk to a lot of you about the judgment seat of Christ, you're fearful of what that day is going to expose because you know it's you and Jesus the judge. Why? What are you doing in your Christian life that is so sinful that the Lord would need to be ashamed of that fact? Paul approached this situation joyfully. Why can't we? You know how you do that? You know how you guarantee that at the end when this life is over and done, the rapture occurs and we're all called up one by one in order to give an account before the Lord and what we've done according to the body, whether it's been good or or bad is the idea that we remain a good soldier and stay in the fight. It's the idea that we run the race, so to be crowned and to receive the prize according to the rules. And the idea that we commit ourselves to the labor as a farmer. We suffer hardship with Paul. That's how you can stand there with a smile on your face saying, thank you Jesus, you're so gracious, you don't have to do this, but you're going to do it. There's no fear there, because there's no need for it. Paul could say this with complete confidence. So, when your life comes to an end, how would you summarize it? Maybe that happens today. Maybe that happens 50 years from now. But if you had the opportunity to have a conversation with somebody one-on-one, could you say, I fought the good fight. I ran the race in such a way as to where I desired to win that prize more than anything. God wanted to give me a crown, and I wanted what God wanted for me. Have you kept the faith? Are you holding fast to the Word of God? Do you need to do an inventory with the Lord about what's currently invading your life? Are you entangled in the things of the world? Have you found that you've been subscribed to an elephant and a donkey before you ever did the Lion of the tribe of Judah? That's a problem. Recognize this, guys. 
I love you. I do. So much. I know you guys get so tired of me talking about politics sometimes. But they have so invaded church circles. This Christian nationalism stuff is garbage. It's poison. Recognize this. It's the idea that all you got to do is be born in America and you're a Christian nationalist. That's stupid. These people are not saviors. In fact, I would say anytime that you have an inkling that the government's out to help you, you were led astray a long time ago. Think soberly, man. Think soberly. Please. Let me bring it back to the beginning. We need to grow. And I'm not so much worried about numbers. I'm not. I am worried about grace. We need to grow in grace. I know what the other churches around here believe because of their doctrinal affiliation or the people I've talked to. A lot of legalism is out there. We are to be about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not here to bind people into rules that they ought to keep in order to be saved. We're here to tell people that because Jesus Christ has saved them, they've been set free. The bondage is gone. It's been broken. And there is nothing but hope, love, and life that is available in Christ for them. But guys, if that doesn't become a reality for us and we don't grow in grace, we can never communicate that reality we haven't experienced. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for giving us this time in Your Word to recognize that we need to be growing in the grace that is in Christ. That we need to be involved in sharing the Gospel and discipling others to be faithful people who can handle the Word of truth and impart it to others. To recognize that suffering will come. That we are to step up to the plate and be good soldiers. Faithful. Executing in the battle. Handling warfare humbly. Remaining steadfast because You are a commander. Not being entangled in the things of this world, but seeking only to be pleasing in Your sight. That we would run the race, stay in our lane, see the prize You've set before us, that You desire to give us, that it would bring You nothing but immense and eternal joy to lay that crown upon our heads. And You just ask us to trust You to receive that in. That we be those who toil, who work hard in order to bring forth fruit, a crop for everyone and have the rights to pick first because of faithfulness. Lord, give us understanding as we roll these things over in our minds. Help us to grasp it. Lord, Satan has put a noose on our country. But he cannot hang the Christian. We have a hope that is greater than this world. We have the Spirit residing in us who desires to lead us into all truth. And Your loving kindness is abundant towards us because we fear You. Father, may You surface in our hearts where we're wrong. May we confess those things before You. And may we move on growing in grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.